0: Father, we thank you for the families that uh, you're serving now uh, by those who are holding babies, teaching children. Thank you that uh, moms and dads are able to sit here and encounter you through music and now through teaching. We're so grateful for Laura and uh, the six years of discipling children and parents and thank you for the loveliness of her family, Stephen, the children, their calling in the city, the community, now especially with the ministry of P.S. I Love You and fostering. Bless it, multiply. Our ultimate desire would be no child in the county that's not receiving the love of a home. Father, for the homes that are coming this Wednesday night, uh, rejoice in and contemplate marriage in its joys and in its complexities would you bless reengage that there would be a revival of renewal among our husbands and wives loving each other and there are some people today who said i don't know how to love anymore and uh, but you're the waterfall of love god So help us to stand under the waterfall today and these 16 weeks to stand under the waterfall of love and be refreshed and renewed supernaturally. And lastly, Lord, we pray for India. Might today be a day where there's relief from heaven through angels, through new medical supplies, through divine relief. Lord, through the church crying out and even those who or worshiping other gods would turn to Christ as the only true and living God and say, save us, Jesus, save us. So do a great work, medically and missionally in, in the great country of India. And for us here, here we are, needy, grateful, blessed, but longing to know how to glorify your name even more. Teach us to do that through the Word, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure that most of you remember as a a child not appreciating the admonition of your parents. When they told you not to do something, you asked why, and their reply was, because I said so. And uh, you would have liked an explanation to you, who said that would suffice, but they know you, that you had a comeback for every. Explanation you would give, so it was just going to make the conversation a lot shorter. So all you got was because I said so. In the section of scripture that we're looking at today, and we have been for a few weeks, there are admonitions don't do this anymore now that you're a believer. But the wonderful part of this section of scripture, there is a why. This is why I said so. We don't just get the command, but Jesus does say remove this attitude, but he always tells us replace it with something better. He doesn't just say stop doing it, but start doing this better thing. Ephesians 4, 28 begins with a stop. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So here God replaces a taking life with a giving life. I think we could say this to rewrite the verse today would be stop stealing, get a job, and be generous. It's like it's so simple. I mean, like the whole message I realized when I looked at this verse, this is the fun part of normally the the latter half of when Paul writes. It's so easy to understand. A child could understand that. In fact, after the service First service, a man told me, do you remember what happened when my son got his first job? He was 12 years old and was working at a golf course, and the first time he made money, he bought three bicycles for our pastors in India. He understood. It's so simple a child. You work so you can have the privilege of giving. You know, when you come to this verse in uh, Ephesians, you realize there's really only three, uh, you know, philosophies of the culture has in regard to material possessions you can steal someone else's stuff you can work and buy yourself a lot of stuff or you can work and give away a lot of stuff there's really no other way to handle material possessions you know the reason that this verse makes me smile is because you don't really think about that that verse would be included in a letter to adults, adult believers. You would think more of that, you find this like in a children's uh, kindergarten classroom where the teacher on day one says, here are the rules of the classroom, raise your hand when asking a question, walk quietly in the hall and respect each other's property. And yet... Paul finds it necessary to say the same classroom rules of management to adults. Why does he have to talk to them about stealing? Because this was the culture that these believers came out of. It was normative to steal. Any way you could get ahead, if, if, if somebody left their wallet in an unlocked chariot, that's on them, not on you. And now what was theirs is yours. This is the culture they came out of, a stealing culture. And you know as well as I do, when Jesus Christ saves you out of a culture, he frees you from being condemned with that culture, hallelujah, that culture is still embedded in you. And it takes the rest of your life to get that culture out of your Mind. The Bible says that when we come to Christ, we get new clothing. We're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. But also we're, we, are to, we are to acquire a new mind, a new way of thinking. Not thinking like the world, the culture you came out of. Because the world you came out of thinks that stealing is right. I read this week that American retailers lose $50 billion annually to theft. from shoplifting, 43% from employee theft. People think stealing is not wrong. I read this week that the government is going to make a huge new investment in the Internal Revenue Service, putting a lot of new funding in it, increasing the funding for the IRS by $700 billion or a lot of money because they think that Americans are in possession of 700 billion dollars of money that's not theirs. You look more honest than this. But they think you got it. So they're gonna form a new program to get the 700 billion dollars and I'm gonna be honest with you, I think it'll work, but like all government policies to get the 700 billion back, the program's probably gonna cost 800 billion. Stealing reveals an interesting facet of human nature. When we become disconnected from God, material things become more important than people or God. That's a a pretty good, pretty simple definition of materialism. If I have more stuff, I will be happier. Therefore, any way that I can gain more stuff is right because happiness is my goal. People who still have no idea who God is. You know, this verse in Ephesians actually completes a thought that God didn't complete 2,700 years prior when he first introduced himself to the people that he called out of Egypt, the the nation of Israel took them to the wilderness, took their leader to the top of a mountain, that would be Moses, and gave them the Ten Commandments. This is pretty interesting. You're going to give people... Something that's going to introduce or influence culture for thousands of years, and you got 10 things to say. The Ten Commandments in Hebrew is called the Ten Sayings. So God has 10, and he uses one of them on stealing. Commandment number eight of the 10 is, you shall not steal, Exodus 20, 15. I know that we're not studying the Ten Commandments today, but I I think if you don't understand how they're laid out... This eighth commandment will mean nothing to you and you'll be like the pagans of Ephesus. You still don't really understand why the foundation, what the foundation is of why stealing is wrong if you don't understand how the Ten Commandments came out. Ten Commandments. Commandments one through four are what you owe God. Commandments five through ten are what you owe man. Therefore, if you do not believe in one through four that There is no God or that God has not spoken. If you feel like you owe God nothing, then you will also feel that you owe man nothing. If you say there is no God and that you have been created by an accidental collision of molecules, there is no difference between you and a bag of chemicals. And therefore, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Because you have no special value. And if you have no value, then your enjoyment of the possessions that God has given you, that enjoyment has no value because you have no value. When a thief breaks in your backyard and steals your garden hose and your bird feeder, if there is no God, then it's not wrong for him to steal. You could just say it would have been your preference for him not to steal. But then he would reply, but it's his preference to steal. And so, if God has not spoken, then to steal or not steal is simply a matter of personal preference. And if there is no God, then we have evolved, as Darwin says, and only the fittest survive. And therefore, what is yours is yours as long as you're strong enough to keep it, if there is no God. Several months ago, a woman in our church was leaving a bookstore in our city, three in the afternoon. No idea on her mind to be looking out for getting to her car, but she didn't make just a few steps out of the store, and a thief came and grabbed her purse. Instinctively, she clutched to it tighter, which caused him to drag her to the ground. She's holding on. He's dragging her across the sidewalk. Until she lets go. If there is no God, then there was nothing wrong done that day. Because it's simply one bag of chemicals tugging against another bag of chemicals. And the fittest will survive. This is why the existence of God matters. That there is a God who has spoken absolute moral truths. Your obligation to respect man and his property is based on you respecting God who gives property. In Genesis chapter 2, God made the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, the first husband and wife, and for their wedding gift gave them a garden. And because Eve was already busy inside doing laundry, Adam was outside on his zero turn And that's why God gave this command to him. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God created a material world. And he gave it to Adam and Eve and to you and says, it's yours, take care of it. So when God says, do not steal, what he's really saying is, I have created people, and I have determined what I'm going to take from my hand and place in their hand, and you have no right to ever remove it from their hand. It was my decision to place it in their hand. Not only does our property matter because God gave it, but our property matters because It was given for us for the purpose of managing it and multiplying it, maximizing it, reshaping it, and essentially recreating his creation. And it gives God great pleasure to watch us experience pleasure of this recreation of his creation. The Bible says in Psalm 90 verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Favor from um, the Hebrew word noam, which can be translated uh, delight, pleasure. God takes pleasure in blessing the work of our hands that bring us pleasure. To make things. This is why Paul told these new converts in Ephesians 4.28, our original verse, anyone who's been stealing must still no longer, but must work, hands, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. It's funny, he, he, Paul could have just said, you know, the thing I did at the beginning, get a job. He, did, he made sure he stated it in such a way, doing something useful with your hands. You have 200 bones in your body. 50 of them are here. Do something useful with your hands. Useful from the Greek word agathos, which means good. It pleases God when you experience the pleasure of doing something good with your hands. And when you're firing on all cylinders... A few things are going to happen in life in regard to stuff, and number one, you're going to get a job, and you're going to work with excellence at your job because your Father in heaven is a creator, and what He does is good, and He makes good things, and you're designed in His image, and you're designed to make good things. It's God-like to work. Every day you go to work, you're imitating God. If he lived in your house, had your name, drove your car, went to your factory, he would go to work each day, and he would work at making widgets with absolute excellence, and at the end of the day, he would have experienced so much pleasure over his pile of widgets that he would look and go, whoo, that's very good. And he loves for you to experience the pleasure of the possessions that he puts in your hands for you to multiply those Going to work is a very spiritual, God-honoring, God-pleasing thing to do. And all of this just amplifies the horror, the crime of stealing. In every conceivable way, it's an assault on God. Because it is His decision to give stuff into people's hands from His hand. To manage, to multiply, to reshape To experience pleasure from that. And stealing is taking things out of someone's hand that God put there. Last winter, on a a fairly chilly day, was also misting. I pulled up early in the morning. And uh, on the back of the awning, on the side of the building, on the sidewalk underneath the awning, I noticed a pile of blankets So I drove my truck there, and underneath the pile of blankets was a woman who looked about as bad as a woman could look. I obviously startled her, did not mean to. I told her, don't be afraid. Um, Would she like something to eat? She said she would. I went up the road to a fast food place and got a breakfast biscuit, brought it back, handed it to her with a drink, and then told her I was going to move my truck. She could eat in peace. I drove around to the front, walked through the doors, gave her some time, made my way out through here, out the back shell space, and opened the door to find a man standing next to her eating her biscuit. I don't know if it was a man that she lived with or a pimp she worked for, But everything about that man felt evil. So I knelt down and I asked her, can I help you? I can help you. Do you want me to help you? Not surprisingly, if you've worked in this area, she said no. She didn't know who I was. And it turned out that if I had no long-term help to offer, She was going to be in more trouble tonight than she was the previous night. So they got up and left and walked across in the mist in the chilly morning. If you want to know how God feels about stealing, just amplify the feelings that I felt, the anger I felt in my heart that day when I saw that that man had taken the biscuit that I had placed in her hand. That's how God feels about stealing. Stealing. He's sovereign and he decides to place things in people's hands. No one is to take them out but him. So we've seen throughout our study in the section of Ephesians that every time the scripture says, you know, remove something from your life, it's so that you can replace it with something better. So here in Ephesians, we find that the better is giving instead of taking Giving is the opposite of stealing, and it's why you go to work. So here, first century culture, the Roman Empire has changed. A bunch of people had stealing hearts, and now they have giving hearts. The purpose of your work is to make money so you can give it. It just couldn't be any more clear, could it? I mean, it would even be hard for me to mess this up. Like the great Methodist John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher John Wesley said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Give you a little brief bio of his life. It's, It's not fitting for all that he did to sum it up like this, but he was born in 1703 and England. He graduated college at Oxford at 1724, worked for his dad for a while, who was also a preacher. He returned to Oxford to get a fellowship and to teach as a professor in 1729. While he was there, he met a group, uh, gathered with a, a group of guys, uh, his brother Charles, the hymn writer Charles Wesley, and, and a guy that you would know in Christian history, a guy named George Whitfield changed the landscape of America during the Revolution with his open-air preaching. Benjamin Franklin loved Whitfield. They all met together to challenge each other to uh, purity. They, They observed communion, the Lord's Supper a lot. And they would go visit the prisoners in the filthy Oxford jail. They discovered that a lot of men were there because they just had a little money to pay on a debt they couldn't pay, and that's why they were in prison for life they began paying off his debts they would visit workplaces that had were in inhumane conditions they gave money to the poor i mean medicine to the poor and clothing he sailed to england in 17 i mean he sailed to america in 1735 and on board that ship he met a group of moravian missionaries who so loved jesus christ that he said i have now seen what it means to worship the lord fully as my savior he identifies his salvation early then on board that ship. He came back in two years uh, to England, and his friend George Woodfield encouraged him to begin open-air preaching. There were too many empty seats in church. Let's preach out in the fields where the people are. He preached first in Bristol and then began preaching all over England, Scotland, and Ireland, traveled 250,000 miles on horseback, and preached 42,000 sermons in his life. What I love about John Wesley is not just his energy, but his financial plan for his life. When he began teaching at, in- and, uh, at Oxford, his first year there, he earned 30 British pounds, which was enough, plenty enough for a single guy to live on. So he lived on 28 British pounds, and he gave two pounds to charity, first year. The second year in his teaching position, he earned 60 British pounds, still lived on 28, same as before. So now he could give away 32, as the previous year he gave away two. Third year teaching at Oxford, he earned 90 British pounds, still lived on 28, gave away 62. Fourth year. Earned 120 British pounds, lived on 28, gave away 92, which was at that point 77% of his income was given to charity. Um, In John Wesley's life, he would write 233 books, made a lot of money off those. 30,000 pounds of royalties. Yet when he died, there were just a few coins in his pocket. The rest had been given away. At that point, it was 98% of his wealth he had given away to Christian charity. In 1776, the English tax commissioners audited him they said, a man of your income, there's no way that you do not have more silver laying around the house. Wesley wrote them back after the investigation, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. This is all the plate I have at present, and I shall not buy any more while so many around me want bread." The purpose of the message is not to suggest that everybody imitate the life of John Wesley. That's not your calling in life. He's not your Savior. The purpose of life is to meditate upon Ephesians 4.28 and ask, what does that mean for you? And the answer will be different for all of us. But when you're firing on all cylinders, a few things are going to happen in your life. You're going to do your job with excellence. And when you get paid, you're going to say, God, thank you for letting me earn money. And you're also going to say, God, thank you for letting me give money to the charities, to the mission of your church that's on your heart. So if you don't have that mindset, when you get paid the joy of giving, probably... uh, one of three things are happening in your life. Number one, you're taking credit for the money you're making. The Bible says in Deuteronomy eight eighteen, Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. <laughs> That's just a big verse, isn't it? He gives you the ability. Yesterday, we had the privilege of celebrating our grandson's first birthday. You probably read about it. It was a big deal. (laughs) For us, it was. And he definitely got some stuff. One of my favorite things he got was was a new swing. You know, when I see him in that swing, I could say this. And no other children are ever going to be in that swing. That's my swing. I own it. It's in my yard. I paid for my yard. I paid for the rope. And I used my mind and my hands and to hang it. My swing. And to that the Lord will reply, it is true. You did buy this stuff and you did use your mind and hands to hang it. But that's my branch. And that is my tree. (laughs) Giving is a celebration of the abilities and opportunities that God provides for us to succeed. He makes it possible to hang a swing. When God's people got out of sync in the Old Testament, they forgot that everything belonged to the Lord, and they didn't give to Him anymore. And God rebuked them for it in the last book of the Bible, Malachi chapter 3 verse 8. God says, Will a mere mortal rob God don't really think about that a lot, do you? Yet you rob me. You ask, how are we robbing you? And God answers. In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So here we have a, we see a whole different, a second type of stealing. You can steal from somebody else's hand their property, or you can steal by something that's in your hand that should be given to God. There are some things God gives you only to be given back to him. And when you realize that God is the one who gives you the ability to earn money, you will celebrate the privilege of giving to him. Well, how much should you give? Well, I'm not going to tell you that because I might undershoot. I mean, the word tithe is there and in the Old Testament. It's always translated 10%. So that was a target that God gave his people. Uh, so it's a good target. I don't know what circumstances are occurring in your life, but why would I limit you to 10% or why should I put a number? I just tell you that's a good target, but Who knows, there's another John Wesley, 98%. Why would I want to go fiddling around with that number? But I'll tell you this, if you're not giving anything, especially to the church where you come in order to nourish your soul, and that a a staff works for six days in order that this would be a time of extraordinary spiritual refreshment, both to you and then to the ministries we support locally and around the world so if you're not giving anything to the place that you would identify as the gathering place of your of your earnings start somewhere if you're not giving start with 10 dollars Start a hundred dollars, a thousand. Start. Maybe start with $10,000. Or maybe today you start with a million. Just start. You start somewhere because you're celebrating the God who gives you the power to earn wealth. Giving is a joyful declaration that we would have nothing apart from our generous God who owns everything. Which leads to point number two, which is a little bit of a cousin of number one, but a differentiate, uh, it, there's a different, enough of a differentiation. I want to bring it up. Why do you not give with joy or give it all? Because you view yourself as an owner instead of a manager. Psalm 103 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So two big words in the verse that show how much God owns, everything and all. Apart from that, the rest is ours. (laughs) He owns everything and he owns all. Like Adam and Eve in our earlier illustration, he owned a garden and gave it to them to manage, but it's his garden. He owns it, they manage it. I don't know if you've seen this guy roaming around our building, but his name is Chris White after retiring from BMW. He wanted to do something else if that wasn't a long enough career, so he became our building and grounds guy. So if you like the way that things are clean, he's responsible for driving out all dust, all dirt, all germs. If you get sick here, it's his fault. (laughs) Chris cleans well. He whistles well. Too much... Sings well, and this week for the staff, he cooked hot dogs well. But imagine this scenario. Chris spends all week, which he does, cleaning floors and all the rooms. But next Sunday when you show up at 9 a.m., all the doors are locked. You can't come in. Because he's got the keys to every door in this building. That's the authority we've given him. All the locks, all the keys, all the doors, his. Whatever he needs to purchase for cleaning, he has the authority to go buy it. So he has great privilege, great authority. And what if next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock he keeps the doors locked because he doesn't want to open them because he feels like that you are messy and loud Now, what would you think? You would say, he doesn't have the right to do that. Why does he have the right to do that? Because he doesn't own the building. He's just a manager of the building. It's not his property, though he has great privileges on the property. That's your money. You don't own it. You're a manager of God's money. When people hold on to money that God has commanded them to give, it's because they have forgotten that God is the owner, and they're just the manager. Nobody in the business world understood this more than R.G. Letourneau. I'd like for you to see a three-minute video of his life.
1: I'm just a sinner that's been saved by the grace of God just a mechanic that the Lord has blessed. I love my machinery, but I have to prove to the Lord that I love Him more than I do the machinery. Referring to the 1930s, a man once said, Dirt and money had some strange kind of part in the ways. In Oklahoma, there seemed to be a lot more dirt than anyone knew what to do with but there wasn't a dollar among any one of them. In The Man R.G. Laterno, dirt and money somehow found their way back together again. Laterno was one of a few people who amassed a fortune during the period of the Great Depression, and he did it doing one thing he really understood, moving dirt. There was no question the uneducated mechanic from Duluth had a knack for inventions big ones, pioneering the industry of so-called earth-moving equipment. His equipment not only built Hoover Dam, but was also found landing on the beaches of Normandy. But what was perhaps more unique about Laterno was the partnership he had formed in business some years earlier, a partnership which directed him to make some of the most unbusiness-like decisions at some of the most difficult times. Decisions like giving employees Sundays off when they were already failing to meet their weekly production quotas. Like increasing corporate giving to the church when they couldn't even meet payroll. It was a partnership which earned R.G. a reputation as a religious crackpot. A partnership which, nevertheless, always seemed to work. Over the years, R.G. and his wife, Evelyn, granted 90% of the company's stock in the form of a foundation, as well as 90% of their personal salary. Letourneau didn't find it fitting that he drew more than a salary from a company which God really owned. One thing Letourneau always said was that he never wanted to seek personal security in this life, a fact which often made clients a little nervous. R.G. felt that if God wanted to take his company away for whatever reason, that was God's right. After all, it was his company to begin with. His responsibility was to run it in a way that was pleasing to his partner. In the end, R.G. and his wife Evelyn left very little of their vast wealth to their children. Their view was rather than leaving much of the world to their children, they'd rather leave their children to the world as fellow partners with God and with a great sense of mission and purpose, R.G. and Evelyn Letourneau, they lived the generous life. So in
0: closing, there will be a third reason that might be occurring in your life if giving is not a delight, and that is you haven't seen Jesus clearly. When the Apostle Paul was raising money to feed the starving saints in Jerusalem, he wrote a letter to a church in Corinth, Greece. They had money, and he said, You should be giving it, and you're not. And this was the verse he motivated them to give with. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. There's a couple words in the um, New Testament for poverty. One is, I don't have a lot at the end of my paycheck at the end of the month. That's not the word that's used here. Paul uses the word tokos, which means I'm a destitute beggar, I have nothing. This is what Jesus Christ did leaving heaven and coming to earth. He gave away everything becoming poor in relation to what he possessed in heaven so that you might inherit the riches of heaven. Obviously, the phrase that I left off, the verse, Jesus had it all. Honor and power and privilege. He gave it all away, became poor. He gave away honor for curses, a crown for thorns, radiance for darkness. Nailed on a cross so that you would inherit God and heaven and eternal life. So when you look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross... There is no one in this room who can say, I have really made a sacrifice for God. It's laughable. When you look at him and see his sacrifice, who can say, I'm living a life of sacrifice? Deep, tokos, sacrifice. So how do you get there? It's supernatural. I was walking a guy out after the first service, and he said, I heard, this is the guy who invented the earth-moving equipment, we showed his a film a minute ago, he said, I heard R.G. Letourneau speak 66 years ago. Man, I said, you're old. <laughs> he said, that is true. He said, "I oh, I was 10 years old. And I heard him speak, he said, he's a big man with a big voice. And he came out and the first thing he said is, I can move mountains, but only God can move a man. I'm telling you, this kind of giving, supernatural. Natural heart's gonna resent giving. A Christ-transformed heart Loves it. Generous, glad, radical giving requires a new heart, a new mind, and a new life. And where do you get that? By daily staring at the amazing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for all the opportunities that have made success possible. A printer connected to a computer filled with software designed by a lot of smart people. A building with lights, cameras, keyboard. Bones working through fingers to play black and white keys designed by musicians so that pleasure reigns now upon our ears and our hearts. Thank you for our ear canal, our eardrum hears this. Thank you for my tongue which was able to preach, my mind which stayed clear. The seats that were, held each other up. Lord, it is your generosity that has made success possible today. So now we give to you. Delightful, pleasure. And Lord, tomorrow when we go to work, Thank you for the hands, the eyes, the mind that will recreate, reshape things that are before us in our job or at our home. It will bring you pleasure to watch us making your world better. So thank you for making that possible. God, most of all, thank you for your hands. Not full of 50 bones but infinitely large, oh, large enough (laughs) to hold the universe in your palm, all of the oceans, all of the mountains in the palm of your hand. Yet you did give that hand to be filled, those precious palms. You did become a man with 50 bones in the hand that were nailed to a cross. You gave away everything so that we would gain heaven. We would gain forgiveness. We would be made new. You gave everything. So now today, we stare at the cross, the amazing life of Jesus, both his agony and his triumph. We stare at Jesus and say, give us His giving heart. Today, we ask that someone, Lord, today would start not with money, but would start with their own heart. And they would give you the fullness of their heart. All their past, all their failures, all their sin, all their sadness, all their decisions, all their future, all their needs, today, transfer Ownership of their life back to where it belongs to you. Bring them to yourself through Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.